So, um, good afternoon and welcome to the third and um, final Gender and Authority Seminar this term. And we'll be continuing the programme next term. Um, and so we can well, keep an eye on the website and the mailing list for, for information about forthcoming um, seminars and other events. Uh, it gives me great pleasure uh, to welcome Lynn Burkett from um, Western Carolina University, Western Carolina University, sorry. Um, uh, and so thank you for joining us from so far away. Um, who is going to be presenting today on Tina and the musical Canon. Lynn is a, an assistant professor of music um, at Western Carolina, and she holds a PhD in music theory from Indiana University, having previously taught at UNC Asheville, um, SUNY Potsdam, and Indiana University teaching courses for music majors and non-majors on topics including the analysis of rock music, women and popular music in the US, and rock criticism. She studied piano with Gary Wolfe, Marianne Covert, and Carolyn Bridger, and harpsichord with Carl, and apologies for any pronunciation errors in this uh, in name, um, Luvenar Lewick, is that right? Um, and Elizabeth Wright. She specialises in performing 20th and 21st century repertoire, especially works composed by her husband, Brian Burkett, with whom she's enjoyed an artistic collaboration since 1985. Her scholarly work has appeared in the Journal for the Society of American Popular Music and Society and the Indiana Theory Review, and her analytical essay on composer Ruth Crawford um, Seeger's Piano Study in Mixed Accents is included in a collection of essays entitled Ruth Crawford Seeger's, Seeger's um, Worlds. So, um, Lynn, if you'd like to uh, take, take the stage, as it were, um, uh, thank you very much for joining us, and if you'd like to join me in welcoming Lynn. Um, Um, entirely up to you. Okay. I think I'll sit. Seventeen is the most widely circulated magazine for American adolescent girls. It has a history that predates the rock and roll era. The brainchild of publisher Walter Annenberg and Mademoiselle Magazine promotional director Helen Valentine, Seventeen's first issue was published in 1944 and circulation had reached two and a half million by July 1949. And the magazine is still in circulation today. Picked this up at the airport. Under Helen Valentine's editorial leadership, Seventeen magazine reflected the ubiquitous presence of music as culture and consumer product in the lives of middle-class and upper-middle-class American teenage girls. At the bottom of the cover of the earliest issues of Seventeen, one finds the words, Young Fashions and Beauty, Movies and Music, Ideas and People. From its first issue, music had a prominent place in Seventeen, and music's importance in the magazine reflects music's importance in the lives of girls and young women from 1944 through the immediate post-war era. Today I will discuss the creation of Seventeen and the type of music content found in its pages during Valentine's tenure at the magazine, September 1944 through April 1950, and I will address ways in which this content can be understood as canonic. Finally, I will address how and why Seventeen created a musical canon for the then newly discovered prototypical American teenage girl named Tina during a 1945 marketing research project. Previous studies have addressed various aspects of Seventeen's content from specific eras. Canilla Holm has focused on the magazine's portrayals of schooling between 1966 and 1989. Kelly Masoni has examined Seventeen's messages regarding occupations in 1992. Sandra Karen 
William Halteman, Kate Pierce, and Jennifer Schlenker have completed feminist analyses of content in selected issues. Kelly Shrum has addressed advertising in 17 between 1944 and 1950. And Shelley Budgen and Don Curry have studied references to women's liberation in and what references to women's liberation and women's and girls' fashions in fashion magazines, including 17, between 1951 and 1991. The observations I will discuss today are drawn from work with my own archive of just over 100 issues of 17, from the first issue through 1981. And table one in your handout shows the magazines I worked with that fall within the 1945 to 19, the 1944 to 1950 date range. Seventeen came into being during World War II as a service magazine to meet the needs of teenage girls. In her book, Fashioning Teenagers, A Cultural History of Seventeen Magazine, Kelly Massoni describes the origins of Valentine's ideas for this new magazine. Quote, Valentine said to Annenberg, I saw a picture of a meeting at the UN, and it was a photograph taken before the doors opened, and there was this long line of people outside, and 90% of them were very young. This is what started me thinking about the young people in this country. People have an idea that the only thing they're interested in is their next date, but it isn't so. They are really thinking about very important things, and we ought to be thinking about them in those terms." End of quote. Valentine's observation on society's perception of teenagers at the time was not far off the mark. In an article in the June 1942 Etude magazine entitled Interesting the Teenage Girl, H.M. Butterfield remarked, girls of, this, quote, girls of this age seem especially trying to teachers, vain, lazy, interested only in boys' clothes, sororities, and parties, end of quote. The stereotypical teenage girl of this era was the Bobby Soxer who swooned at the sound of Frank Sinatra's voice. Masoni describes how Valentine took a bold step forward by addressing teenage girls as thoughtful young adults. Quote, Valentine saw her readers not just as consumers but as citizens of tomorrow. She wanted to introduce her young readership to high culture and literature, art, and music. She believed that girls' artistic sensibilities had not yet been obliterated by commercial culture and that they could still be serious responders to music and art. Valentine illustrated the magazine with the work of well-known artists and photographers such as Ben Shahn and Francesco Scavulo. In 1947, she hired graphic designer artist C.P. Pinellas, art director at 17, a move that would bring artistic acclaim to the magazine. Valentine made sure that every issue contained weighty reading on serious issues. Seventeen's readership was quickly approaching voting age, and Valentine believed that they needed the kind of information that would allow them to make educated decisions as voters and citizens. End of quote. The weighty reading on serious issues Seventeen readers encountered included articles like I am 17 and live nowhere, about a teenage girl living in a displaced persons camp near Munich. That was in the September 1949 issue. Your Place in Politics on Being an Informed Voter in the October 1948 issue, and Blueprint for a Better World on the 1945 United Nations Charter, and that was in the 1945 September issue. 
The table of contents in these early issues of 17 included a section called Your Mind and a regular column, Science and You. References to music were abundant throughout the magazine in a number of contexts, but most of 17's music content could be found in feature articles and record review columns. And I think you have a copy of the record review column from, I believe it's the May 1948 issue, and it's at least the first two pages. Record review columns were included in nearly every issue, beginning with the first issue. The title of this column changed over time. Initially, it was Music on a Platter. Then, soon after Edwin Miller joined the editorial staff as entertainment editor in 1946, the title changed to As We Heard Them. Brief descriptions of several recent recordings were included in each monthly column. Categories included in each column changed as genres of music and the terms used to describe them changed. The categories included in the music in the magazine issues in my archive are shown in table two in your handout. Some categories, such as long hair, classical, and swing, described styles or genres of music. Categories such as dance and listening music described music according to its function. One at a time and single records organized music according to format. Commentary on changes taking place in genres or technologies was frequently included in the review columns or in accompanying articles. The May 1945 record review column, written by Dixon Geyer, began with a paragraph addressing the question, swing, fading? An article in the, 19, in the September 1948 issue, Here's Uninterrupted Record Music, offered an explanation of the advantages of new 33 and a third LP records aimed at a sophisticated and discerning listener. Quote, the combination of vinyl light and a very light tone arm reduces surface noise to zero, and that's where the lovelier to listen to comes in. With the whole symphony complete on one record, your storage problem is simpler. Important, too, on symphonies and concerti, you no longer have interruptions between records. End of quote. Each of the categories allowed for considerable overlap. For example, in 1945, Les Brown was mentioned in dance and swing categories. Tommy Dorsey's recordings were mentioned in both vocal and swing. George Gershwin was mentioned in the show tunes and vocal categories. Anita O'Day in dance and vocal, and the New York Philharmonic Symphony in both long hair and vocal. Introductory notes accompanying many of the record review columns instructed girls on learning to love great music. Quote, and in this month's releases are several excellent starters. Music to play while talking quietly, reading, sewing, knitting, or paper covering your school books. Later, you will stop this doing other things. You'll find great music uses your imagination, fills the empty spaces in your heart, and does a more lasting job of healing hurts than almost any other leisure filler. And that's from the September 1948 issue. Under Valentine's editorial guidance, Seventeen's record review columns addressed readers as citizens and consumers, introducing them to an astonishingly wide variety of music. Readers were encouraged to listen to Igor Stravinsky, Doris Day, Eugene Ormandy, Jean Krupa, Hector Villalobos, Frank Sinatra, and Ernst Krenick, among others. Teenagers, specifically teenage girls, were a new and emerging demographic group 
in the United States in the 1940s. And music was an important part of what identified them as a group. In her book, Some Wore Bobby Socks, The Emergence of Teenage Girls' Culture, 1920 to 1945, Kelly Shrum addresses the origin of the word teenager in American English. Table three in your handout shows a timeline of this word's entry into American English from the 1920s through the mid-1940s. Shrum addresses the term's sometimes gendered connotations and its importance in helping society recognize teenage girls and begin to address their needs. Quote, the first half of the 20th century witnessed the development of a group identity among high school girls, bounded by age and to a larger degree by gender. The institution of high school played a critical role, as did rising commercial and media attention to high school girls as consumers of fashion, beauty products, music, and movies. Language also became important as the words teen, teenage, and teenager were defined. The Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature first listed the word teenager as a separate index entry in the 1943-45 volume. Although spelling varied for decades, the language of a distinct age cohort linked with an educational institution, peer culture, and gender was underway by the 1920s and 1930s." End of quote. This newly recognized demographic group longed to define themselves with their fashion preferences, grooming habits, food choices, and plans for the future. In a similar manner, music was an important part of their daily lives, both in and out of school. Seventeen magazines' record review columns and feature articles on music engaged and instructed readers on how to make good choices in this area of their young lives. In the years preceding the rock and roll era, Seventeen offered a musical canon for the American teenage girl. In his 2007 article, Culture Wars, Canonicity, and a Basic Music Library, Edward Kamara offers 10 ways in which canon can be understood, relating each of these 10 types of canon to musicology. Kamara's list, which draws from Alistair Fowler and Wendell Harris, is included in your handout in Table 4. 17's music content, as I have described it thus far, intersects with and can be understood in terms of four of these ten types of canon. Official, personal, diachronic, and nonce. The official canon is made up of standard lists promoted and institutionalized through education, patronage, and journalism. In terms of music, the equivalent would be the standard repertory of classical music, or something like the Rolling Stone record guide for rock music. Valentine, by creating 17 with her specific goals and values in mind, created, in this sense, an official music canon for teenage girls. The magazine quickly became a trusted and authoritative voice among its readers, and its pages documented the cultural life of these readers, a community of girls who were just beginning to understand themselves as a community. Kamara observes, quote, a canon serves to show from what a community's values and culture are derived, and the best ones enable a kind of compare and contrast dialogue among the selected works, end of quote. A personal canon, according to Fowler, 
consists of works one happens to know and value. In the realm of music, Kamara cites Amazon.com list mania purchaser picks and staff recommendations in library and bookstore newsletters and websites as examples of personal musical canons. One context in which Seventeen acknowledged the importance of the personal canon was in its annual It's All Yours issues, initiated with the June 1947 issue. These issues allowed an opportunity for young readers to contribute feature articles, fashion advice, poems and short stories, drawings, and record reviews. In the May 1949 It's All Yours issue, 18-year-old Georgiana Wilmot of Fairfield, Connecticut wrote, quote, I'm not a critic or authority, but I do know anyone can enjoy great music. Seventeen asked me to tell you what classical records I would choose if I had $50 to spend on new records. End of quote. In the same issue, 16-year-old Kay Miller of Phoenix, Arizona, reviewed popular albums, and 16-year-old Terry Hochter of Yonkers, New York, reviewed single records. Although many of the classical works Wilmot reviews are likely to be found in a diachronic or timeless core canon, and that would be Brandenburg Concerto No. 2, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Liszt's Les Preludes, Handel's Messiah, and Puccini's La Boheme, she discusses her preferences for these works in terms that are quite personal. Quote, First, I listened to the Brandenburg Concerto No. 2 by Johann Sebastian Bach. I chose to listen to this only because I play the trumpet and knew there was a lot of trumpet work and a beautiful solo in it. It delighted me. It was so light and high. End of quote. The reader contributed content in these special issues of the magazine offered young readers the impression that every issue of Seventeen reflected their tastes and opinions. The diachronic canon is the timeless core canon, such as that studied in college great books curricula. The musical equivalent would be scores reprinted by Dover Publications and recordings presented in the New World Recordings LP series, the recorded anthology of American music. Valentine's desire to introduce her readers to high culture presumes a recognition and inclusion of, as well as a respect for, the diachronic canon. As I have already mentioned, references to great music, and great music, were commonly found in the pages of 17. One particular example of a timeless core canon of music presented in a format especially suited for readers was included in the September 1949 issue, 17's fifth birthday issue. Listening recommendations are offered for teenage girls from ages 13 through 18, with different selections offered for each year, including works by Grieg, Chopin, Gluck, Tchaikovsky, Glier, Smetna, Boccherini, Handel, Mio, Respighi, Rimsky-Korsakov, Beethoven, Vaughan Williams, and Max Reger. Specific records are suggested for each year, reflecting the maturing tastes and moods of a typical reader. The Knotts canon refers to timely or trendy contemporary authors, only a few of which will become diachronic. The musical equivalent would be winners of Grammy Awards, best-selling records listed in billboard charts, and this sort of thing. The majority of music found in the pages of Seventeen magazine falls into this category. 
In monthly record review columns, long hair or listening music were the only categories consistently devoted to music that was not timely or trendy. Some of the music reviewed in the folk category might be understood as part of its own diachronic canon of folk music, but for the most part, record review columns introduced readers to recordings of popular music of the day. It is fascinating from a 21st century perspective to peruse the vast selection of popular music included in those earliest issues of Seventeen, identifying those artists whose work today is the subject of scholarly attention. Much of this work is now incorporated into selective or critical canons, appearing in anthologies, in course syllabi, or in scholarly studies. Bing Crosby, Doris Day, Duke Ellington, Benny Goodman, and Frank Sinatra were all mentioned in the record review columns in multiple issues in 1945. Some names have faded into obscurity. Other musicians whose names appeared in 17's record review columns are still being rediscovered by new generations of listeners. Band leaders Freddie Martin and Freddie Slack, who also garnered reviews in multiple months, in 1945 are not as prominent on today's cultural landscape as they were then. Jazz singer and pianist Hazel Scott, whose Decca recording of Fascinating Rhythm and The Man I Love is reviewed in the October 1945 issue, has recently gained much-deserved critical and scholarly attention among a 21st century audience with the 2008 publication of Karen Chilton's biography. Of the ten different types of canons Kamara discusses, the nonce canon most accurately characterizes not only Seventeen's musical content, but the entire magazine, and to a certain extent, perhaps even its readers. Harris's description of nonce as, quote, a rapidly changing periphery is an apt description of teenage girls themselves. As teenagers and as girls, they are on the periphery of society, as teenagers, they are no longer accorded the protections and benefits of childhood and are not yet fully recognized as adults. As girls, they miss out on opportunities available to their male peers in classrooms, on sports fields, and in a number of other contexts. And as adolescents, their lives are, defi are defined by physical and emotional change. A serious consideration of Seventeen's music content it requires one to embrace the nonce canon and to accept that this type of canon, perhaps more than others, exists as a product of creative tensions between art and commerce, emotion and intellect, youth and experience. The inclusion of these different types of canonic musical texts in the early issues of Seventeen reflect Helen Valentine's respect for and understanding of teenage girls. Estelle Ellis, Valentine's colleague and promotional director of Seventeen from 1944 to 1950, remembered the magazine's beginnings. Quote, Valentine envisioned a magazine that would treat teenage girls seriously and respected what she perceived to be their emotional and intellectual needs. Valentine wanted to teach teenage girls a concern for how we are as persons, for how we relate to family and friends, how we present ourselves but also a deep concern for what's happening in the world politically and socially, as women, as full human beings, to be part of the greater human struggle." End of quote. Musicologist Carl Dahlhaus, in Foundations of Music History, explains how the musical, music historical canon was formed, identifying, quote, carrier strata that coexist within a society. 
carrier stratum being understood to mean a public whose members have something in common besides their musical interests. Generally speaking, a socially definable carrier stratum participates in several musical genres at once. And conversely, each genre involves several carrier strata. In abstract terms, this means that it is not individual social and musical strata that must be brought into mutual relation to each other, but rather groups of strata, that is, large segments of the hierarchy. End of quote. Teenage girls are, in Dollhouse's language, a carrier strata. Seventeen's early editorial content helped to bring large segments of society, for example, teenagers and adults or fans of different styles of music, into mutual relation to each other in terms of how they learned to value music. At a time when the world was full of fear and uncertainty, Helen Valentine set out to accomplish the important task of shaping teenage girls into thoughtful, intelligent citizens who would lead their generation with optimism into a bright future. Her work is just as relevant today as it was 70 years ago. Early issues of Seventeen magazine serve as important primary source material for historians with interests in music, the arts, education, girl studies, media studies, and a number of other disciplines. The musical canon found in these magazines bound young women together with a generational identity and connected them to a wider world through music. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lynn. Um, should we take a few minutes now for, for, for any um, questions specifically for, for Lynn's paper and then We'll hear from Alexis and have some big questions for Alexis, and then we can have a kind of general discussion at the end. So, was Helen Valentine exceptional in what? Because it's it's amazing what she's trying to achieve, and just looking through the current Seventeen magazine, obviously doesn't have these great educational and enlightening goals. So, what happened when she ended her career? Um, she ended because of pressures to go more commercial. So. Um, I think in creating the magazine, she created a demographic group, and she created a group of people who could be the target of marketing. And once that happened, marketing became the focus, increasingly became the focus of the magazine. And um, columns like Your Mind, one of the chapters in one of the books I read is, like, Tina loses her mind. Um, so the, the, the your mind column disappears and the science in you column disappears and there's more content on going on, on domesticity and as women left the workplace um, after World War II, there was more content focusing on domesticity and not so much on women in the workplace and world political issues. And it changed and she quit because that, it was not a happy party for her. So yes, yeah, she was very, um, she was a maverick in, in a sense. She, she was doing something that was very against the com what we think of as the commercial nature of publishing today, and she was really trying to do something quite extraordinary. Um, yeah, <clears throat> I was really interested in your um, discussion of the origin of the magazine and uh -huh. yeah, Valentine's sense that teenage girls could be seen as citizens, not just consumers. Um, and I wanted to ask, what were the kind of 
political and ethical virtues or values associated with great music, um, and what can the like, musical canon set out in seventeen tell us about the political landscape at the time? Um, <clears throat> what would have been associated with great music? We have to remember that the readers are upper middle class white teenage girls at the time, and. I think another important thing is that this, looking forward, is that the earliest readers were the mothers of the baby boomers. So they were learning one of the most important reasons that women would have received a musical education at the time was to be the keepers of culture in the home. So to pass this on to their, especially to their children, but to their husbands, to say, we're going to the concert tonight, to be on the symphony board in their, in their community. So the classical music that's presented in the magazine, I think, is very much for that. And for teenage girls, I think it's a, part of it is get your boyfriend to listen to this music. Um, so women were seen as the, as the center of culture, not only in the home, but in communities as well. So I think even though it's not stated in the magazine, um, that there are many docu many cultural documents where we know that's why women received that kind of a cultural education. Um, in terms of the popular music that's in the magazine, I think it's easy to say they were selling records, and this is just for consumer demand. But I think it's also more than that, because that's part of the educational mission of the magazine too. So some of the feature articles were about the most popular musicians of the time, Duke Ellington, Woody Herman, Mary Lou Williams. And this is, I think it's remarkable in that it's outside, it's a different kind of canon than would be offered by music educational organizations. So the Music Educators National Conference at the time was saying, here's the music that we think teenagers should be learning. And maybe music teachers should know something about popular music because it's inevitable that they're going to be listening to Benny Goodman. But the music educators were not really proposing that swing come into the classroom. So the fact that it was presented alongside Brahms, that it was presented alongside Beethoven, and really with equivalent space, um, with an equivalent tone, I think is remarkable. It said, if you're a well-rounded person, you enjoy this music, and you enjoy this music, and you understand them as equals. And that's extraordinary at this, at this time. I, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's really something special. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I was intrigued by the, the range of, for the time, kind of contemporary classical composers. Mm -hmm. I mean, Stravinsky yeah. on one hand, Krenik on the other, on the, on the others. How is it relating that, or those more recent generations of, of classical composers to the, the sort of great tradition of, which comes up in the example of, you handed out things like Mozart, Tchaikovsky? I mean, how, where does it sound on modernism, for example, or, or, or does it not really get into um, that? The the commentary in the record reviews is usually very brief. Um, sometimes you'll get what I don't like that's a, a warning about, okay, go listen to this, this Krennic 12-tone music and it's a little bit weird. But often it's relating it to jazz. And I can think of one of the reviews is of a recording of Krennic's 12-tone pieces. 
and it says, go listen to this if you like bebop or if you like if you're a fan of jazz, you will like this. So sometimes it's go it's going between genres and saying that this new this new music by Stravinsky or Krennic sounds a lot like jazz that you hear. And so and that's something again that's kind of extraordinary for the time. Um, it's again it's pulling in um, new composers and living composers in a very in a music educational mission and that is something that's consistent with what would with what teenagers would have been encountering in their classrooms um, especially immediately after World War II getting living composers to write pieces that were accessible for high school students to play and and to listen to as well was uh, I mean I think it was I think MENC was really pushing for that, so that's not as unusual. There's still a recognition of what we would say are the classics, Brahms and Beethoven, and there's maybe more instruction on how to listen to those, and the more contemporary composers, the living composers, are something that you should taste. Try a little bit of this and see if you like it, and then come back to it. If that answers your question? Yeah, I think so. So it sounds like, based on that, that like you were saying just before, it, it was presenting, say, uh, a contemporary piece of classical music in similar terms to, say, a jazz record or, or a pop record. It's, right. It's not sort of set in stone. Right, yeah. Yeah, there's still the idea of what is great music and what is what we would say is the diachronic canon is still, there's an understanding. And the other way you can tell is when a composer is listed by last name only. And there are some who I would give a first name with now, but you can tell there are some composers who the, the first name is never given. And some of them aren't as familiar, I don't think would be as familiar to my students today, but the ones I can recognize who they consider the diachronic canon when they've left off a first name. Thank you very much. So um, if we uh, move on then to our second paper, and we can come back to general discussion. Okay, thank you. Um, so um, Alexis, um, uh, Alexis Brown is a lethal candidate at Wolfson College, writing on films about authors, specifically the process of transformation that occurs when their autobiographical projects are taken up by, by film. Um, so I'll just uh, set up this um, objective for you, and we can... Um, and um, Lynn, do you mind mentioning the, the connection that you present between the papers? Oh, yes, um, the connection between Seventeen Magazine and Sylvia Plath is that one of Sylvia Plath's earliest short stories yeah. appeared in Seventeen Magazine in August 1950, and she had, I understand she had submitted many, many, many stories to Seventeen before that. Yeah, yeah, I was kind of surprised um, learning that, I think, when I was first studying here, because I was like, didn't even know Seventeen published like, mm -hmm. um, like short stories like that, uh -huh. um, and and um, yeah, I mean, it did make me wonder kind of what the magazine was like back then. Um, so sorry, just yeah, yeah. yeah so just just to kind of fill in the context for that for that connection, then um, Alexis's paper will be Lady Lazarus textual authority in Christine Jeff's Sylvia. Is sound? Um, sound? Yes, there will be sound, especially if I do this. <laughs> um. Oops, sorry. 
Okay, yeah, that should be plenty. Thank you. So this is a story about who has authority over the textual remains of an author uh, using the 2003 BBC film Sylvia about Sylvia Plath as a kind of case study. The film opens with a close-up on the face of Gwyneth Paltrow, lying on her side looking ghostly pale, eyes closed as if she's dead. With her eyes still closed, the edge of her face lying just outside the screen's frame, we hear this voiceover. Okay. So, this is not how the film originally began. When it was first released in the UK and US in 2003, it opened with Paltrow speaking lines from Plath's poem Lady Lazarus. These were, quote, dying is an art like anything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I have a call. This opening frames the film in a very different context, shifting its focus from Plath's life and the indecision that may have plagued her to place it resolutely on her work and death, and positions the film as a kind of metaphorical exhuming, implying that as Paltrow's eyes open, Plath is, in a sense, like Lazarus being brought back from the dead. BBC Films began plans for the film in 1998, when Ted Hughes published Birthday Letters, a collection of poems describing his life with Plath in detail. Producer Alison Owens considered its publication, quote, a tacit granting of permission to look at the subject from a filmic perspective, as the volume ended Hughes's over 30 years of silence on the subject of his wife. The BBC wanted Plath's actual poems to be sprinkled throughout the film as well, a move that Frida Hughes, the daughter of Plath and Hughes, promptly refused, in the end banning the BBC from using any of her mother's poems at all. In addition to this ban, she also published a poem in the Tatler excoriating the BBC for expecting her to lend her mother's words to their film. They think I should give them my mother's words, she wrote, to fill the mouth of their monster, their Sylvia's suicide doll. The film's opening was revised to remove the iconic lines of Lady Lazarus, but the disparity between the two versions frames the film within a range of questions concerning veracity, responsibility, and the body in the biopic. Sylvia can be located at the center of various competing biographical, legal, and autobiographical discourses. Countless biographies, copyright law, the Plath estate, the testimony of those that knew her, and finally, her writing itself, journals, fictions, poetry, that, while rife with autobiographical elements, mock the idea of the biographical narrative in their polyphony of differing voices. This paper posits the literary biopic film as an adaptation of these sources, one that offers a rich collection of seamlessly integrated biographical, autobiographical, literary, and legal narratives. I will first examine notions of historical record and biographical truth in Sylvia's screenwriting process to show how the film walks a delicate line between fiction and biography, arrogating much of the authority of the latter with none of the ethical responsibility or scholarly apparatus. I will then show how this lack of scholarly apparatus, inclusion with film technique, allows Sylvia to seamlessly integrate various other forms of life writing into a single sterilized narrative, one that approximates neither her own writing's subjective self-creation via violent textuality, nor a historical record of her life's events. 
And yet, ultimately, my analysis will point to biopics as a form of life writing that has much more authority than you might think. In effect, forming a kind of adaptation that, once embodied, can actually reshape an author's corpus. So only recently has the biopic begun to shift from what uh, James Welsh film critic called a mendacious genre, having little to do with historical or biographical truth, to a legitimate object of study. Yet increasingly, critics like Hayden White and Robert A. Rosenstone have mounted defenses of the biopic's truth claims, arguing that the genre's biographical truth has value outside of a transparent reference to historical record. Ian Christie, for instance, responding to complaints about historical accuracy in Ford's Young Mr. Lincoln, asserts that demanding that the filmic biography narrowly conform to historical record makes a category mistake and misunderstands the genre's function. Biopics, in his view, reference fact via analogy, existing instead in the realm of the conditional, speculative, and poetic. If Ian Christie and others are correct that the biopic references historical fact via analogy or a narrative that inevitably obscures it, what responsibility, if any, does the biopic then bear to those facts? If the referential relationship is not transparent, by what means and in what forms do biographical events still find their way into the narrated biopic life? The makers of Sylvia offered answers to these questions in interviews promoting the film, though their conflicting answers suggest internal divisions and an ambivalent attitude towards what it means for a film to be biographically truthful. Producer Alison Owens, while not advocating a strict adherence to historical record, still felt, quote, a duty to get things as right as possible and a sense of responsibility. With the real-life story, she said, you cannot manipulate the narrative in the way you would with a fictional story. The screenwriter John Brownlow, however, tended more towards Christie's suggestion of pure historical record as unavailable and not worth striving for regardless. He substitutes in its place a truth contingent on the knowledge one has personally available, while also positing an even murkier, deeper truth to which one must adhere. He said, I think the only responsibility you have is to the truth. I don't mean the literal truth, although that is important. I mean the deeper truth. Of course, the truth is lost, so all you can do is tell a story that you personally believe, based on everything you know. Brownlow here articulates a biographical economy of surface and depth in which deeper truth is privileged and set against the literal facts of his subjects' lives. Elsewhere for Brownlow, this deeper truth appears under the nomenclature of some core truth, some nugget of understanding about its subject. Yet access to this deeper truth clearly arose through historical methods. Owen notes how uh, Brownlow was meticulous in terms of the research he did. John employed a researcher who interviewed many of Sylvia and Ted's friends and acquaintances, and so they produced their own body of information in addition to all the source material that already existed. And the source material already in existence at Brownlow's disposal was vast. At least five biographies, Plath's journals, letters, and of course, Ted Hughes's birthday letters. And each offered contradictory accounts of the past. Owen's description of Brownlow's writing process highlights the tension between his dual roles of biographer and fictional writer. Quote, he did an enormous amount of research, then he sat down and wrote, at which point he said he felt the muse was sitting on his shoulder. 
end quote. Um, out of months of historical research came unadulterated inspiration, we're told, with the referential relationship between his research and the final narrative left unclear. Agency and causality in the narrative's creation are curiously elided, as if the story simply appeared to Brownlow via the muse, rather than emerging as a result of his own melding of historical fact and fictional shaping. So how did Brownlow finally approach this ventriloquizing act? In one sense, he did so by conforming to the generic structures typical to many biopics, though this does not imply that in conforming to convention, he abandoned historical reference. To the contrary, in his months of meticulous research, he assumed all the pretenses of a historian, but with none of the commitment to represent historical fact. His work, and the work of Sylvia more generally, remains poised between the project of the biographer on the one hand, producing a subject out of positivist accretions of historical record, buttressed by quotations and testimony, and a screenwriter's fiction on the other, offering access to its subject through reenactment, verisimilitude, and the embodiment of film. In the construction of Sylvia's narrative, this dual method played out in a strange pastiche of autobiographical fiction and biographical text in filmic form. So in turning to Sylvia's amalgamation of both Plath's writing and her biographical interpretations, I would like to contrast Brownlow's model of Plath's deeper truth as lying beneath her literature and historical fact with what I will suggest is Plath's model of experience through language and her creation of a self and even selves through acts of violently textured embodied writing. In his attempt to capture Plath's deeper truth in the screenplay, Brownlow often gestures towards Plath's inventive use of poetry and metaphor, and yet he tempers it, excising its more violent and unseemly aspects in an effort to offer both a more simplified, consumable subject and a degree of historical plausibility. These strategies extend to the narrative syntax of the film as well, in which parallel editing holds competing biographical and autobiographical narratives in unresolved tension. Yet, in trying to offer us both historical evidence and Plath's textually mediated experience, Sylvia ultimately delivers its audience neither one. It's worth lingering on the shift wrought by Frida Hughes' decision to disallow the BBC from using her mother's poetry. For examining the disparity between the original wording and the later reworking of the film's opening lines offers illuminating insight into Brownlow's biographical decisions. Unable to use Plath's own poetry, Brownlow resorted to paraphrasing a passage from the bell jar in the voiceover that begins the film. And in doing so, stripping away the text of its more disturbing elements while collapsing its narrative ambiguity to make way for a more simplified, centered biographical subject. The original passage he drew from describes Esther's vision of her future in a metaphor of a fig tree. The image of a fig tree arises from a short story that Esther reads earlier in the novel, a story that makes her want to enter into the text to, quote, crawl in between those black lines of print the way you crawl through a fence and go to sleep under that big, beautiful tree. Here, we see the result of Esther's imagination melded with and mediated by the textual space of that story, as the metaphor extends into a vision of her body paralyzed by the innumerable possible selves which she might inhabit if only she could choose. 
In a metaphor for the imaginative act of autobiographical writing, Plath creates an economy in which the self is the product of past impressions, literary texts, and imaginative possibilities. Brown, though, is paraphrasing, however, which began this paper, has a flattening effect on the passage as he excises the more unconventional Plaths of, quote, a pack of other lovers with queer names and offbeat professions and an Olympic lady crew champion in favor of the more orthodox and obvious avenues of children writing and an academic career. Um, and just to go along with the theme of this, um, I think these choices were incredibly gendered as well. The raw ambition implicit in these options is further lost. The fame of a writer's future and the brilliance of a professorship that beckoned and winked. Missing also is the violent desperation that appears in the bell jar. Esther is actually starving to death here in the barren crotch of her tree, dying, yet still unable to choose while her future shrivels and blackens before her eyes. The striking physical nature of Esther's suffering is more than mere mental anguish, instead fully embodied in the desire for visceral consuming of figs. Contrast this with Brownlow's Plath, who passively watches as the leaves turn brown and blow away, and the dilemma's crushing immediacy is considerably lessened. And perhaps more importantly, Brownlow erases the narrative distance between Plath and Esther, and even the distance that Esther's placed between herself and her own imagined self. Whereas Esther says, I saw myself, Brownlow collapses this disembodiment and merely writes, I dream of a tree. By replacing this narrative distance with a single coherent I, he suggests a unified subject where alienation and a splintered subjectivity were previously implied creating for us a centered biographical subject that finds embodiment in Gwyneth Paltrow. He mines Platt's autobiographical fictions for continuities of life and art, and gestures towards her use of metaphor with his own, but falls considerably short. While resorting to biographical readings has been a commonplace in Platt criticism, doing so here produces a profoundly impoverished account of the referential qualities in her literature treating it as autobiographical index rather than the product of the possibilities writing offered her to reimagine, fictionalize, and project her life as a malleable text. As Susan Van Dyne has argued, rather than assuming that Plath was, quote, an unusually autobiographical writer, we need to understand that she experienced her life in unusually textual ways, in her letters and journals, as much as in her fiction and poetry. Plath's habits of self-representation suggest that she regarded her life as if it were a text that she could invent and rewrite. End quote. The overall effect of the voiceover obscures this potential, however, overriding the unconventional, imaginative, and potentially disturbing, as well as lustrous dimensions of Plath's writing to instead offer domestication and a collapse of narrative distance into a single-centered subject. This attempt at integrating competing narratives into a seamless account that fails to approximate either Plath's lived experience or historical record extends past Brownlow's screenplay and into the film's own unique signifying practices. Parallel editing here serves a key narrational function in Sylvia, allowing the film to hold contradictory biographical narratives in tension while withholding endorsement of either. A key example can be found in the scene after Asia Weevil and her husband visit the Hugheses in Devon. 
after which Plath su suspects an attraction between Hughes and Weevil. Hughes, played by Daniel Craig, leaves for London on what he says is business for the BBC, though their marital tension is palpable. After he leaves, Sylvia shows Paltrow at Hughes's writing table, rifling through his papers, and seeing something, suddenly ripping up letters and manuscripts in a rage. Paltrow then begins building a fire in the yard to torch Hughes's belongings. Intercut amongst frames of the fire that ensues are scenes of Craig meeting Asia Weevil in a nondescript hotel room, where they have sex. The rapid, continual shifts between images of Plath's destruction and Hughes's infidelity open up two strands of interpretation. Either Hughes has gone to London to see Weevil, in which case Plath, rightly suspicious, reacts with rage. Or, the scenes between Hughes and Weevil are the products of Plath's imagination, and the separate scenes are tied together not through temporal continuity, but psychological insight into Plath's jealous imaginings. Cinematic grammar allows the director to balance the unresolved incongruity in a matter unavailable to prose biography. The two interpretive threads implied in the film's version of this scene have each been taken up by Plath's biographers. Paul Alexander, for instance, asserts that the affair between Hughes and Weevil indeed began soon after uh, the Weevil's first visit, while Anne Stevenson, on the other hand, argues that the marriage's disintegration was large, largely instigated by such instances of jealousy and what she calls irrational and uncontrollable rage on Plath's behalf. Other contradictions between the biographies are also glossed over under Christine Jeff's direction, including the infamous call to the Hughes' Devon residence that Plath suspected was Weevil. While Paul Alexander claims that the voice to be Weevil's, and Stevenson attributes it to her male colleague, Christine Jeff um, deftly avoids resolving the ambiguity by never letting the audience of Sylvia hear the voice on the other side of the phone. That scene completes its pastiche as Poucher turns to Craig and says, the truth always comes to me, the truth loves me. A quotation in Ronald Heyman's biography attributes to a conversation between Plath and her friend Elizabeth Compton. In part, this method gives cinematic shape to the aporia that plagues all Plath biographies, a problem that many biographers can be quick to gloss over as well. Any positivist reading of these events is irrecoverable, as Hughes destroyed Plath's journals from the period, and the project of extracting biographical fact from his own accounts in birthday letters is problematic to say the least. But biopics do not have the luxury of footnotes and quotation marks. Versions of truth and fiction are placed side by side indiscriminately, with the audience left to guess at which is which. In simply mixing and matching these narratives, what Brownlow asserts to be deeper truth comes up as a messy melange of details, a patchwork of the verifiable and invented assembled with little discernible logic past appeasing the sensibility of a BBC audience. As one review of the film succinctly put it, quote, this is the central failing of Sylvia. You can't make a confusing story more lucid if you yourself are still confused. Sylvia was not just another installment in a long slew of biographical endeavors, however. Aside from editing techniques specific to the medium, the biopic form differs from biography in another crucial dimension. The narrative Brownlow produces was not only written but embodied, given over to people who offered his words a literal shape and voicing. 
While the textual embodiment in Plath's writing offered her an opportunity to actualize possible selves in language, so too did the embodiment of film lend Sylvia a material point on which the words of Brownlow, Plath, and others could converge. And the effects of embodying this narrative can be seen in the film's popular reception, further underscoring the biopic's potential for obfuscation. To return to the film's first scene, a Google search of the revised opening lines beginning Sometimes I Dream of a Tree reveals blog after blog in which dozens of people attribute the screenplay's quotation to Sylvia Plath. They have no idea that these words are actually a screenwriter's paraphrase of a passage from the bell jar. They believe without hesitation that this is a poem of Plath's own. This is beautiful, one blogger writes, and very sad. She was so tragic, but her work still shines like a beacon. Another asks, does anyone know the title of this poem? It's by Sylvia Platt, smiley face. <laughs> Bloggers often entitle the poem The Tree of Life, though others will leave it untitled. One enthusiast exclaimed one of my absolute favorite quotes of all time. Frida Hughes hated the idea that her mother's poems would be put into the mouth of what she called a Sylvia suicide doll. But this result is arguably much worse, as here we see the reverse, and a doll's words have instead been put into the mouth of her mother. In the public imagination, at least, the slippage between this biographical embodiment and the actual Sylvia Plath is finally so pronounced that it allows for many viewers the film Sylvia to actually reshape Sylvia Plath's corpus. This slippage may suggest that the traditional biopic is not an appropriate vehicle for depicting the lives of literary authors, especially those for whom experience itself was so mediated through the textures of language and writing. But if Sylvia leaves us with a pale index that papers over the richness and intensity of Platt's life and work, perhaps fault lies not only with its makers, but also with an audience who so readily accepted her, um, an audience who chose this Sylvia in her stifling banality over the far more human, strange, and disparate Sylvia Plath as she wrote herself. <laughs> <laughs>